For the next session, um, I'd like to re-invite Iona Heath, who um, was with us yesterday, and her team on Engaged Voice. Welcome, Iona. The Engaged Voice. Uh, I want to start um, by reminding you all that it is Lawrence Stern's 300th birthday today. Um, and in Tristram Shandy, he wrote, everything in this world, said my father, is big with jest. This is really a message to my panel. And has wit in it and instruction too, if we can but find it out. Okay, panel? Um, the um, three distinguished people I have with me today have all written a book with NHS in the title. That's all we have in common. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say that that actually does disguise quite a lot of diversity. Um, I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they are going to speak, and I've asked them to begin our conversation with a three-minute presentation each. And I'm going to take them at the knees if they go for longer. Um, Ray Tallis, um, you know, was in introduced yesterday um, as an intellectual colossus, I think. But I'm going to confine myself to describing him as a retired uh, professor of geriatric medicine, a uh, philosopher, a writer, and more recently, a campaigner. Roger Taylor used to be uh, a journalist, um, but then was... Uh, uh, was part of the founding of Dr. Foster, for whom you still work. Um, Dr. Foster, which um, collects numbers on the NHS and seeks to explain to us what's going on on the basis of those numbers. Alison Pollock is um, Professor of Public Health Research and Policy at Queen Mary University of London, and also a public health consultant within the NHS. So, Ray, can I invite you to start? Thank you very much indeed. I'm delighted to be talking on this issue, which is, as I know indicated, something very close to my heart. But I want to sort of step back a bit and think about the role that doctors have had historically. They've, historically, they've been intellectual, cultural, and sometimes moral leaders of their communities. They have looked beyond individual patients coming before them to the circumstances that have contributed to those patients' troubles. They've been engaged more broadly in making the world a better, fairer, more rational place. They've tried not only to treat illnesses, but to address the social conditions that are predisposed to illness. Doctors were once advocates for their patients. Behind that was a professional ethos that placed a great emphasis on independent judgment, and that included a willingness to be a pain in the backside where necessary. Now, it's easy to exaggerate this. Some doctors were uncaring, some were ignorant or incompetent, some were venal, some abused their authority, and some took little or no interest in the great and small social issues of their day. But even though the ideal, even so, the ideal was there as something to be striven for. This idea of the doctor, of the engaged voice, is in danger of dying. And there are good and bad reasons for this. Firstly, the authority of the professions in the world at large has been greatly diminished. In part, this is a reflection of the postmodern critique of the legitimacy of authority. But in part, this is a, a reflection of the transformation of the professional from someone who has a covenant with society and with her patients to someone who is required to deliver on narrowly defined contracts ever more closely prescribed. 
the endless torrent of instructions and mandated activity leaves little space for the exercise of clinical judgment, never mind taking the wider view. But worse, worse than this, a contractual world, the world of neoliberalism, in which individuals are closely monitored and required to meet a multitude of targets and are finger-waggingly reminded that they'll be funded only for what they're required to do, means that they will do sometimes only that for which they're funded. The manifestations of the deprofessionalized, a disengaged voice of the doctor are many and various, but I will mention two and then shut up. The silence of doctors in clinical settings where patients have been abused by frontline staff tells us how they become mere sessional functionaries. <laughs> Although I have to say, having heard the very rich discussion we had last night facilitated by Sam, I know that it's much more complicated than that. What is less complicated and even more shocking is the relevance, re relative silence of professional bodies when politicians launched an all-out war on the principles that established the NHS. This tells us how marginalized doctors have become in the decision-making processes that will determine above all the quality of care patients will receive. The Semtex suppository that the coalition inserted into the NHS would not have got past a medical profession that was truly engaged in the health of the nation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ray. Roger, can I invite you to follow that? Thank you very much. Um, as Anna just explained, my background is in journalism and in consumer information. And uh, I got into this whole space uh, over a decade ago when I set out with the seemingly simple task of trying to better inform patients and the public as to the quality of different healthcare providers, having little idea of just what an interesting area I was going to get into. Um, ten years on, I've really got two thoughts which is, you know, not bad for a decade. Um, really, really, that, and that the voice I'm interested in about, talking about in terms of engaged voice is the voice of the patient. And really, the two, the two points I would make is the first is this, which is we don't know enough about the impact of healthcare on the lives of patients. We simply do not collect enough information. Now, I understand collecting of information has got a very bad name in recent years because of its abuse in targets, and I very much endorse what Ray was saying about that. But we do need to understand this, and it seems to me it should be an absolutely standard part of any medical treatment that we systematically collect from the patient what is happening in their lives as they go through these treatments and subsequently. The second uh, point I would make around engaging the patient voice, and this is really, this is just a, an observation building on, on, on the work of many people who have looked at this and just made the observation that when we look at the public debate about health policy, and this is not just in the UK, this is in pretty well anywhere you look in the world, the dominant voices are the voice of the payer, which is primarily governments, and the providers, the people who actually deliver care. The third voice, the third stakeholder, the patient, has a very muted voice in these debates. Now, it's very hard because patients are naturally, they want to trust healthcare providers. These are complicated areas. So it's a really difficult thing to do to engage the patient intelligently in this area. But what I would say is our efforts in terms of creating rather sort of formal patient involvement groups uh, have been pretty anemic in their impact. And what I would really like to see is a health service that welcomed and embraced any groups of patients who wanted to take a more active role. Now, this is not for everybody, but there are people out there. I'm going to a meeting in 
London on Tuesday, about 100 people who really, what they just want is their own information. And we have a health system that will not, at the moment, give it to them. And it seems to me these, these are not difficult obstacles to break down, and we should be welcoming these people and trying to give them the information, information they need in order to help them become more engaged. And that will help us have a, a, a more even debate as to the future of our health system. Thank you. Um, hello. Uh, I don't usually use um, a computer, but I only, only gave me 400 words. So, the reason why we're all here today is the NHS, really. It's why we are here. It binds us together, and it has allowed so many voices, actually, to be heard throughout the day. So I'm going to start with my voice. As Iona said, I'm a scientist and a doctor, and I trained in public health science on top of medicine. And my teachers taught me to report the truth in science and to put the interests of patients first. And as a public health doctor, I had to learn to exercise my voice independent of local management and local politics in order to defend the needs of the local community. And I hope that's what I've been doing for the last 30 years. But I'm going to summarise my scientific work on the NHS and those of my colleagues who work with me. And the first thing to say is our NHS was abolished by the Health and Social Care Act in March 2012. That 65-year-old uh, duty to secure and provide comprehensive healthcare throughout England has now been abolished. And what we've got instead is our government's priority, which is to clear out NHS patients from NHS hospitals, to close and cut services as fast as possible before the next election. Hence the debate over a and &E accident in emergency departments. And what's left behind will be privatised to for-profit corporations. The government's working at breakneck speed and it has an army of highly paid helpers. It's manufacturing deficits and discontent in order to deny people care and persuade people they need to go privately to pay for their care. So the NHS has been reduced to a £100 billion stream of tax funding and an NHS brand. So what we're seeing is the cuts and closures of A&E departments, mental health therapy services, selling off of services like Hinging Brook to Serco, Virgin with the great big community services contracts and Group 4. And those that aren't privatised are being privatised from within. NHS hospitals and foundation trusts will be franchised out. Venture capitalists are investing safe in the knowledge that trusts now have freedom to generate up to half their income from private patients and private insurance. That's why the government needs to clear them out. So why have so few of you heard my voice and the voice of all our scientific work? And the reason is the political voices which are organising to counter the truth using false counterpoint remote from reason. These political voices blame NHS staff and where that fails, they blame the public and the patients. And I'm going to give you some examples of the political voices at work, because they were at work last night and they'll work today too. First, they attack the NHS staff for bad leadership and poor management. But leadership and management was superb in Auschwitz. What's new about the leadership over the last two decades in the NHS is that patients' interests no longer come first. There's a new interest. The second is that politicians blame doctors and nurses for our loss of trust and our failure of empathy. But this is psychobabble. Without an analysis of the new system, it stops us in understanding why patients' interests are not being served. Missed staffs simply exemplifies this. The trust was being prepared for privatisation, deficits were being created and used to justify cutting staff and services and denying care. 
and there was extraordinary institutional violence that went on. At the same time, we have a government that's generating false data and statistics using Dr. Foster's mortality league tables to create an impression of bad quality and unsafe care. But we statisticians despair at the rubbish that's coming out from Dr. Foster's statistics. Finally, the politicians blame us, the patients and the public, claiming that austerity, the ageing population, infinite demands of patients and migrants make the NHS unaffordable. This is all total balderdash. The myth of the demographic time bomb has been exploded by scientists. Read your BMJ last week, but it's been repeatedly exploded. And so too has the myth that we have an infinite demand, an insatiable appetite for healthcare. How many of us want to go to our doctor? So, politicians ignore all our careful science and also other evidence that migrants give more than they take out of the system. And as for not being able to afford it, the NHS was created when we were broke in the aftermath of war. What makes our NHS and our services unsustainable are the high costs of the private finance initiative and the market policies created by the government, like the £1 billion contract that's gone to Virgin with no oversight whatsoever. So we've reached the final frontier. It's our NHS that's been abolished and that's been dismantled. But it's not too late to make our voices heard. And unless you and us and we engage and confront the political voices, we will all pay for it. got more to come, so let, 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 let's carry on. Um, now, I, I want to raise the issue that politics has become a dirty word, and politics has become besmirched. And we did initially want to um, call this session uh, the political voice. But that upset Alison greatly, um, be because she is constantly uh, being accused of being... Um, overtly political and not scientific. I think that's fair. And I just wanted to, um, you know, the role of all of us in society, the degree of, well, Amartya Sen in his book, um, The Idea of Justice, says that um, social justice is completely dependent on the possibility and reach of public reasoning. Now this here, in this rather sacred place almost, is such a rare possibility of public reasoning, at least in my experience. Um, and the suppression of any uh, possibility of public reasoning and public debate around the Health and Social Care Act in England was extraordinary to watch. Um, so if I could ask you each maybe to talk about the, the current deficit of public reasoning, if you agree, maybe you don't, and how we might reclaim that territory, because it is ours. Um, and uh, and my, I would argue that patients will never have a possibility of full participation in anything if there is no arena for public reasoning. Who wants to start? Well, perhaps we should talk a little bit about the appalling coverage 
of the abolition of the Health and Social Care Act by the BBC, which has now been written up, and you can read it on Open Democracy, which is a very good website. But if you, re I mean, I don't know how many of you were actually told, hands up, that the NHS was being abolished by the Health and Social Care Act. Almost nobody knew that. And yet, it wasn't for want of trying. I mean, we worked day and night, weekend after weekend, producing briefing after briefing, and trying to get it in and into the House of Lords where the debate was taking place. We managed, but we could not get the BBC and the media to pick up that story and tell the truth. Instead of we had these disguised political voices reassuring everybody that it was going to be GP-led, GP-owned, GP-operated, and in the hands of GPs. So there was no information. You're all being starved of the truth and the information. I'm just to pursue that a bit further. <clears throat> First of all, there were a lot of lies told. We were told, for example, that the, uh, the Health and Social Care Act would not involve universal privatisation or general marketisation of the NHS. Earl Howe said this repeatedly. We actually seen different things he said in private. And what's more, that there have been um, evidence now of the rate of privatisation, which has astonished even me. It may not have astonished us, it astonished even me. So that's the first thing. There was active deception. The second relates to vested interests. 70 MPs who voted for the Health and Social Care Act themselves had personal interest in private health care. 142 of the peers who voted for the Health and Social Care Act had vested interests. So basically, of course they were going to vote for it. You know, they went to financially benefit. None of those were picked up by the media. And I think we can't have a decent national conversation if that conversation isn't at least supported by national media that are willing to dig deep. And a third point is, why did the BBC in particular fail? So on the day that the Act was passed, they said, Act that gives the budget to GPs is passed. That was the strap line. It doesn't give the budget to GPs, it gives the budget to lawyers. But essentially, that the BBC is in a state of post-Hutton shock still. And I think we are, so answering, finally coming around to Ina's question, we will not have a good national conversation until we have media that are willing to deal with complex and difficult issues fearlessly. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to come back to your point about the, um, the difficulty of having a sensible debate which engages the public. And, and I think one interesting example of this, which sort of would argue seemingly against the sort of transparency that I, I, I believe is a good thing, um, but which nonetheless I still think is the right thing to do. Uh, and that's the, that where we've seen, for example, successful reorganisations of emergency services, so where we've seen, for example, stroke care or heart attack services uh, concentrated in a smaller number of places, and we can see that this has had a, an, you know, that there are people, large numbers of people alive today who would not be but for these changes. But they were able to be done largely because the public was quite unaware of what was going on. Which is not, a, and, and, and you contrast that with what happens where certain, sometimes where, I mean, the, the, perhaps one of the most interesting examples is, is Pontefract A&E, which, which was closed overnight because it's, it's quite a small hospital, it's quite close to Pinderfields, and it was not a very sensible use of money to have this open all night for about roughly 12 patients who, who turned up. And this produced absolute uproar. Yvette Cooper, the MP, came in behind the local campaign, and the, it was impossible for there to be a sensible conversation about is this, does it make sense to keep this unit open overnight? And I think that there is a real difficulty about getting a level of, of public understanding of the issues that enables these sort of conversations and the level of trust. I mean, on the one hand, everyone says that, you know, sort of, you know, 
I, I, I love my local NHS, but if your local NHS makes a decision like that, nobody trusts it. Nobody believes that that service is going to be closed and that money is going to be used to do something better for me, quite rightly. And I would, I, know, I would say the same. I say, I don't believe you. I can see what you're taking away. I have no idea what I'm getting back in return. Why on earth would I accept you, you doing this? And with that level of trust in the system, it's pretty hard to have a, a, a sensible debate. Except you, you did think that, you know, closing, uh, you know, bringing together stroke units. It's interesting, again, because... The trouble with our attempts at public reasoning is that they tend to simplify something dreadful. Um, and stroke units, that's terribly interesting. And I'm going to ask um, Ray because I now think that they've, they've, I understand that they have now looked at what the component of why the large units do better. And it's actually due to quick access to particular treatment, which could actually be done in any unit. And, and frankly, you're all my witnesses. When I have my stroke, very strong family history, I wish to be looked after into a unit close enough to my family that I might get a visit, and I will swap uh, the small uh, improvement in mortality for that. But will I be given the choice? I doubt it. Do you want to come in, Ray? Oh, gosh, don't throw me in the briar patch. It's one of my favourite topics. And basically, I was partly responsible for the National Service Framework for Stroke. So everything, everything you worry about, I can take full responsibility for. Oh, I Actually, knew, I knew there was absolutely. First of all, uh, concentrating stroke service in one particular place is not just about thrombolytic therapy, which is only for minority. It's actually about the whole issue of brain care. It's about early rehabilitation by experts and so on, all of which requires an aggregation of expertise in those early weeks, or early days anyway, which you couldn't replicate in a cost-effective or even effective way in, in, in a multitude of centres. So I'm very glad within my metropolis of Greater Manchester, we have just a small number of designated units to take acute stroke people. Of course, when it comes to the longer-term period, then, of course, rehabilitation is rolled out and longer-term care is in the community. So, and this, I don't agree with it, Iana, but I think it's interesting the point that Roger said, is because it's so technical that you can do it under, 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 the, under wraps, and so there's no banners outside saying, keep our stroke unit open, and so on and so forth. Um, but the yeah. A&E departments that have been threatened with closure right across the country throughout England, it's not contrary to what our medical directors would like to say and Bruce Creo's report, which has no data and no evidence in it, by the right. way. Yeah. If you look at it, there's no data. But it's actually not being driven by patient needs. And it's not being driven clinically. It's being driven by deficits which have been manufactured and the diversion of funds into large PFI contracts, private finance initiative contracts, uh, and also now into Virgin, Serco and G G4. I mean, Virgin has a £1 billion contract for community services in the South, as you know, and it's impossible. It's a 1,500-page contract. There's nothing about the numbers of staff or the types of services or the quality or range or number of services to be provided. So they, will, they are having a bean feast. And also, the, the, uh, uh, could I bring up the issue of what was it that, um, was it David Nicholson talking about, the impossibility of two ho adjacent hospitals planning their care in a coordinated way because of the anti-competition? Yes, it, please. It's a perfect example. Um, extraordinary. Two potentially rival hospitals, Poole and Bournemouth, wanted to actually become a single trust and to work closely together. Spire Hospital down the road saw this as a cartel and they therefore blew the whistle and they stopped this happening. As a result of which, the Spire Private Hospital, beg pardon. As a result of which, so far, Poole Hospital has drifted £14 million into the red, and they've spent £6 million on legal fees. 
This is on emerging that makes geographical sense, massive support from patients, massive support from the people in the front line like GPs, massive support from consultants. Spire has said no, and the lawyers, and actually Alison predicted all this, I have to tell you. Everything, she's professor of Cassandra studies. Yes, Everything she, she thinks that is going to happen has actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Alison does know, sees the writing on the wall long before but this. The, but the it's because she, looks at the, because she looks at the data, isn't mm. it? Because you really look at the data. Yeah. yeah. But the, the key to this now is that there's nobody in charge anymore. The Secretary of State no longer has a duty to secure and provide comprehensive health care. And everything flows from that duty. So the abolition of that duty means that we're now into a proper marketplace where providers will have pick and choose. It's not about patient choice. This is about choice of patient, not uh, you having choice of provider. And actually, we're going to have the data collection systems are all being dismantled that we actually need in order to ensure universal public health care. We're not able to monitor it, and those duties um, have been discarded. So we really, really do need to fight for that, and that's why David Owen's bill. How many of you know about David Owen's bill? Extraordinarily enough, David Owen in the House of Lords was the sole peer to fight, well, one of many actually, but uh, to fight against the health and social care bill. But a year later, he brought a new bill into Parliament, which is an emergency bill to restore the NHS and to restore the duties on the Secretary of State for Health. And so at the moment, the big problem is that we've got the Labour legacy, which is being now implemented by the Tories, because the Labour were just as responsible for all these policies. They put it all in place. Um, and so what we have to do is get behind this very short six-clause bill, the um, Health and Social Care Duties and Baharat Bill, which would restore everything. And it's an emergency bill for a new parliament. And we have to make sure that Labour really do get behind this. There are signs that they are, but it's still not strong enough. And actually, you don't let them fob you off, as they did over British Rail privatisation, when they said, oh, it's all too late. We can do nothing. And I just think it's really important to remember we can do something. We're a political force. And Munich and Berlin, they've just reversed their privatisation of utilities by common democratic consent. In Bolivia, they reversed the major water privatisation. This is going on all across the world, the, channel, uh, the challenges to global capital. Because, of course, the beast that we're feeding is US foreign policy. These corporations and these venture capitalists have their origins, many of them, in the US and the US healthcare system. And that's what the government is now putting in place. We're moving very quickly to a private uh, voluntary health insurance system with a rump for the very poor, uh, if that at all. And I think that's what we've really got to prevent and fight against. Roger. People who have um, been, people like Ray and Alison, who have... Um, this commitment to uh, public reasoning and to social justice have found the contribution of Dr Foster less than optimal. Um, would, you, would you like to comment? And is there anything more that Dr Foster could do to support the, a, a real genuine debate about what this is all about? Because one has a feeling a bit like the King's Fund. I hope there's no one from the King's Fund here and the Nuffield Trust. There are a whole range of organisations that have grown up because they're prepared to say to government what government wants to hear. And I have a slight feeling that Dr Foster may be in that category. But maybe you can... Yes, that's a, a fair question. I think there's, there's sort of, actually there is some common ground. There's some, clearly there's some areas of, of disagreement. I think Alison's notion that there's no financial problem 
I mean, I suppose that the, the, the big picture that sort of... I actually didn't say that. Well, I think the you said that the demographic... Yes, OK, just to be really clear. You said there's no demographic time bomb, which I think is absolutely right. However, the demographic time bomb, and this is, this is kind of the simplicity that often happens in the, in the media, gets used to as a, as a way of referring to the fact that the rise in healthcare spending has exceeded the rise in GDP in most developed health systems for several decades, and there's no sign of that stopping. So that's a real issue, and we've got to deal with that. Um, the, and that is the fundamental thought that is driving most of the stuff we're talking about. I think the bit, the, the, the really, the area of absolutely where I would completely agree with um, what Alison is saying is that we are moving towards privatization of services. I think it's, the other thing I do think, I think it's really important to distinguish between privatization of services and uh, the end of a commitment to free universal healthcare. Oh, and but we'll, we'll come back. But I, I, yeah, exactly. I know that gets. Yeah. Um, but but, going but, but, but the, the, the yeah. area where I think I would completely agree with Alison is around privatization of services without any ability to find out whether we are actually getting good quality service for money. Because if you go into a marketplace and you try and buy something, you have no way of telling whether you are buying quality or not. You will get rubbish. And we, I think what happened with social care, where social care was put out to competitive tendering, uh, and where the contracts were not, um, did not have built into them quality standards, we saw a degradation of services to the point where you get these 15-minute segments of care. And it was, it was, uh, we've seen it happen. And we are, the kinds of services, this sort of billion pound contract that's being referred to, the, the services that are being put out into these contracts are services where we have absolutely no information and no way of telling what, what the quality of what we're going to get, and it is an ex extremely risky situation. Which of you two is going to explode first? Ray, by the way. Yeah, you can feel I look like a grenade with a pin working its way out, don't I? But that's a Exactly, not a suppository. I'd like just to sort of cast you, ask you, invite you to cast your eyes across the Atlantic. That's the first thing. And secondly, I want to talk about Dr. Foster data. And thirdly, I want to talk about the patient voice. Cast your eyes across the Atlantic. First of all, 18% of GDP is spent on healthcare compared with 9.5%. Alison got the figures here. Secondly, their health and uh, well-being and all the other markers show it's a shit service for twice the price. <laughs> Secondly, how much do patients know about the decision-making process that determines what, what service they can or can't get in the H in HMOs? None at all. What will happen when we have large private contracts? Commercial confidentiality will be the trump card that stops not only patients, but even the local uh, physicians or whatever. So if you want to extinguish information from the health service, what we've got, and I think we've got much more information than you claim, if we want to not get value for money, if we want to not be able to protest about not getting value for money, carry on as the, uh, the Health and Social Care Act is proposing. I just want to talk about Dr. Foster data. I, I, I agree with all of that. That's, but that's but right. Dr. Foster data, some of it has been absolutely eye-poppingly, unbelievably, awfully and wrong. And a lot of it has not even been gone through the peer review process. It's gone straight to the Times newspaper. For example, the data that is supposedly that you have got five times the chance of dying from pneumonia if you go into a, 
uh, English hospital compared with American hospital. Just well, to be very clear, that is pro- not Dr. Foster data. I really need to make that okay. very, very clear. Well, all I can say is it's Brian Jarman data, yeah. and, and, and he is intimately associated with Dr. Foster. I don't think it's great distance. But that's the kind of data, the reliance on standard mortality okay. ratios, just, just, everybody uh, who knows. Just, just, just to interrupt you, we actually pu- Dr. Foster then published something shortly afterwards which pointed out that that comparison didn't really work. So we, we, there's a clear distinction there. Okay, what about your, sta- your reliance on standard mortality ratios to raise all sorts of concerns about individual hospitals, which must be incredibly terrifying for patients demoralise them to staff. I mean, Alison is the expert 50% here. 50% of us here are below average. So let's take us out and get on the 50%, you know? Again, that's just a misrepresentation. <laughs> it's a misrepresentation. The data, we do not I, I, uh, say anything about people being above or below average. We look outside control limits. We look for very wide differences from the range. And you could have the whole system can be above and below average and still within control limits. It's not about the point you're making. And the data you very, very poor in quality, but can I just pick up on what you about regulation? Because and, and I also want yeah. you to explain, because we are constantly told by government exactly what Roger has just said to us, which is it doesn't matter who's providing as long as it's free at the time of use. And, and you have explained it in your book extremely clearly how those two, two are, are two sides of the same coin, and I wondered if you could spell it out just for Roger's well, benefit. I can, um, in, on two parts. <laughs> and, and perhaps the way into this is through Roger's argument that actually the problem is just poor and weak regulation. And if only we regulated our private sector better, it would all be fine. But actually, if you look at the economic theory, it tells you itself, the economists themselves have said why markets don't work in healthcare, going back to Kenneth Arrow in the 1950s. And there are a number of reasons, which also include you know, the high transaction costs of the market, which take around 30 to 40% of the budget before you even begin, let alone all the surpluses and profits you've got to make. But then you've got things like regulatory capture. The regulator gets captured, and we've got that in the US where the lobbyists are in there capturing, so you can never change the system. You've got principal agent problem. You've got all sorts of economic, the economists themselves have provided a textbook on why markets don't work in the health service, because they're very complicated. They're by by individuals. We can't commodify your care, or your care, or your care, so that it's just a, um, a factory, which is what they would love to do. And there are all sorts of reasons why markets don't work, but actually the big one is cost and money. It's very, very expensive to run a market. And that's why we shouldn't have it. And it also means that we've actually got to fragment patient care, we can't integrate it, and we don't take a public health approach. A market paradigm is very different from a public health paradigm. And the main reason is the way in which risk is treated all of our risks in this room, because markets operate by segmenting and selecting out the risks that they want. So you think about your car insurance. How many of you are young men under the age of 25? Well, you remember what it was like for your car insurance premiums. You can't afford it. That's how the market operates. It segments on the basis of risk. And so that's actually the crucial distinction as to how risk is handled in a universal system, and contrary to what Roger says, it's actually been abolished, how risk is handled when you have to cover everybody's needs and provide for them on the basis of their need and not ability to pay, 
as opposed to a marketplace where you've got Spire and Virgin and Circle, who, which can pick and choose the patients they want. No more music therapy for dementia patients. No more mental health services, especially for those with chronic and long-term disabilities. We don't want them. And if you want to see how this works and plays out, go to the US and look at the healthcare plans. Where you're in employment, you will have between 20 health plans every year to choose from, and you decide how you want to handle your risks whether you're going to take out private insurance, whether you're going to cover yourself, your teeth and your family or your children, and you have this barrage of information that is really, really confusing, and then you've got to make a decision, but at the end of the day, you're still paying enormously. You're paying twice, three times as much as we do here in the National Health Service. So if you want to know more, read my book, NHS PLC, The Privatization of Our Healthcare. It was written 10 years ago. It still is eight years ago. It still is pertinent today or NHS SOS as to what you should do about it. But there's textbooks written on why markets don't work in healthcare. So why are our politicians so gormless or greedy? One or the other. Hi, uh, Hina, can I, I just, just, yeah. just uh, I, I think, I don't disagree with what you're saying about the difficulties with markets, but you are rather conflating a lot of things, and you're making a very big contrast with the US system, which, which is obviously a complete catastrophe. But if you look at uh, other European systems, you know, they're, they're not, they often have, if you take the, the, the how much to, because I, and I completely, you're absolutely right, there's an issue around uh, the degree to which services result in people paying for care privately outside the system. But we have a higher rate than many Scandinavian countries. Uh, and we, so it's not, you, I, I, don't, I mean, you're right, there are problems with markets, but to suggest that um, every system except the UK system doesn't work, I think is, a, is an exaggeration. Right, so I didn't say that. But I think it's really important to remember that the NHS for 40 to 50 years was very good at controlling costs. It was only around 4, 4.5% of GDP. And it wasn't until the 1980s and then under Blair where actually you saw the huge inflationary costs where it really went up to 9% of GDP. So actually the NHS was very efficient at controlling its costs. But one of the reasons why the, why the Blair government actually... Um, uh, increased expenditure was partly because it needed to pay for the private finance initiative, which is currently distributing billions of pounds out of the NHS into the pockets of the banks like Royal Bank of Scotland and the venture capitalists and the construction companies, and that's year on year on year. This is a huge debt that we are paying now for the next 60 years, year on year. Right. Just a quick one on how good the NHS stacks up as a way of delivering care in, in, in international comparisons. Give me, correct me on this, but I think it was 2012, the Commonwealth Fund, which is actually located in New York, it's a think tank, it compared a pile of health, health services and the NHS came out top in terms of cost effectiveness and it came out top in terms of access to care. Those are pretty good, uh, important criteria. It came out near the top in relation to other things. So it seems to me that the machine wasn't broke when the Tories took over and they've tried to fix it by essentially blowing it up. Well, no, I, yeah. It, 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 it definitely wasn't broke, but to go to that Commonwealth study, it is worth pointing out that the Dutch system was more equitable than the NHS, yeah, and came out much stronger on much better outcomes, 
uh, much better at engaging patients and has elements of a market system in it. Well, the Dutch system's in meltdown at the moment because they're moving to a private health insurance policy for those that can afford it, the civil servants, and they're also breaking up and privatising huge elements, and that's causing enormous um, discontent and rising inequalities. And there are very good papers published this year about the catastrophe that's actually happening in the Dutch system. Yeah. So. And I, I just, before we open it up, I just wanted to... I think there's something very peculiar about people who have worked in the front line of healthcare within the NHS. And the, uh, Roger describes it rather disparaging as, a, uh, as, as treating it like a favourite child. But I think, again, I want a slightly more sophisticated analysis. Um, there is something about um, the exposure to human misery that gives you an obsession with social justice. And I, so I just wanted to give you a little bit of Simone Weil to, to lighten the, uh, the mood. <laughs> the sense of human misery is a precondition of justice and love. He who does not realize to what extent shifting fortune and necessity hold in subjection every human spirit, cannot regard as fellow creatures, nor love as he loves himself, those whom chance separated from him by an abyss. And I think it's one of the enormous privileges of the work that we do that we understand exactly what that means in a way that I think our current, well, many of our political leaders completely fail to understand. So maybe you would, just before we open it up, if anybody wants to elaborate on. It's and the language you've just used would be almost incomprehensible in the Westminster bubble. What is she talking about? She's talking about something that's central to all of our profession, but central to us, the knowledge that it could happen to any of us and that society as a whole will have that intrinsic decency that will recognize that we're all exposed, we're all vulnerable, and when one of us falls, we'll all support that individual. Thank you. Can we have the house lights up, please? Hello. Um, so, can we have some comments, some questions, some dissent, some consent, assent, some... Yes, uh, so uh, front, then back to Johnny Tomlinson. Yes, and then further back. Hi. Um, I'm probably not really allowed to speak because there's probably a hundred people that have read more and understand much more about what's going on. I'd like to ask Ray and Roger. Um, Roger, you said that it, your information collection is not sort of directed towards targets because you didn't really aim towards them. Is there sort of a practical means for your information collecting then and what you would suggest we use it for, apart from comparison, which I don't think is right? Yeah, I, I, mean, I think actually one thing I would say that's definitely been a problem and, and is very much informing the, the, the way we're, we're going at the moment is that um, it's, it's not just targets because one of the problems has been that the, the use of information around particularly around small, small numbers of very salient figures has effectively crowded out any sensible ability to take a rounded view of what quality healthcare and actually I, I would admit that, you know, when we started Dr. Foster 10 years ago, there wasn't really any information out in the public domain. There's now, actually, as Ray says, there is quite a lot. Not enough, but there is quite a lot. And the, the, the problem is, is actually, is that certain bits of information just get 
blown out of proportion and become t distorting. And it's the, by far the biggest thing of that is targets. And although there is supposedly a move away from target cultures, people are still being roughed up in the most extraordinary bullying fashion about specific numbers that on their own just don't mean a thing. And we have the, the, the solution to this, and I think Don Burke's report pointed the way, the solution to this is, in my view, is that we do need, mu we need a lot more data, but the data needs to, be, needs to be quite detailed, and it needs to be in the hands of the lowest level of organisations. It needs to be people at the front line who need to take this data and be responsible for interpreting it. And I think that is hopefully where we, we need to get to. Might be an advance on the Daily Mail, so. Yeah. Um, Alison, did you want to? Well, I do, because I'm a public health physician, and, and uh, we shouldn't be using hospital mortality league tables at all. Um, they're problematic not just for small numbers, but because of the assumptions about case mix, the unstable denominators, you name it, numerators, denominators, none of them are good. And what we should actually be doing is looking at utilisation rates and access rates across a whole area. We should be going back to that duty to secure and provide healthcare for all and looking at inequities in provision. And we've stopped doing that over the last five or ten years. The government's deliberately moved away from it. And the other worrying thing is that as more care moves into the private sector, we will not get any data on the private sector. And the best example of that is all the work we did on the contracts to do with the independent sector treatment centre centres, where all the elective surgery, like hearts and hips and cataracts, they were all bundled up and shoved out to the private sector, which cherry-picked the profitable ones. Did they report any data on them? Absolutely no. And we've published all this in the BMJ, and that, of course, then renders all the data meaningful because of all the rubbish stuff. By rubbish, I mean the difficult patients, the hard ones, the ones that the private sector doesn't want. Then if that's all put into the uh, NHS hospital, of course their mortality, the mortality rates are appalling. Whereas if the private sector's got all the good ones, has cream-picked all the, cream-skimmed all the good patients and they're not reporting any data too, then how do you make any meaningful comparison? So you've got to take it back down to the area and look at area-based uh, access and mortality and stop all this focus on individual providers is meaningless. And just to pick up on... Rod and, Rod and we've been sorry. saying this for 10 years. The statisticians and epidemiologists have been saying it, but nobody listens. Jonathan, have you got a mic? Yeah. Does it work? Yeah. Um, I want to bring it back to voice, please. Um, so two questions, one about patient voice and one about um, professional voice. Um, is it inevitable that we will treat patients as consumers um, if we are to give them more of a voice? Um, so what's the link between patients as consumers and patients with a voice? And if professionalism is the basis of medicine's contract with society, what can be done to encourage professionals to use their voice as advocates for patients and advocates for health? Can I make... That's not my role. Keep going. Just a couple of things. I think our representative bodies ought to wake up to what's going on and actually... Thank you. They ought to show some leadership. Um, basically, it seems to me we potentially have an extraordinarily important voice of standing for professional values. But with some striking exceptions, Claire Garada is the leader of the Royal College of General Practitioners, a superb example. But if you look at my college, Royal College of Physicians, you look at most colleges, you look at the BMA, they have shown no leadership on professional values. So anybody who wants to express professional values finds herself or himself very much on her own, and, or him own, his own. And the other point is that if we increasingly privatise healthcare, people will be pressurised to be company, loyal company women and men. 
And so asserting those professional values against the values of the company you're working for will become more difficult. So a positive thing, we need to make our representative bodies basically rediscover their mission. And secondly, we need to prevent those things that will absolutely extinguish professionalism and consequently the patient voice. Yes, we haven't had the patient bit answered. Yes, do, yes. do patients only have voice as consumers? No, and I think actually there's, there's probably only about six patients in the entire country who are actually act as consumers in the way that a lot of the sort of the models around consumerism, I mean, it's just not a very good model to think about patients. But I, on the other hand, and, and certainly I, I agree, there's a notion of, sort of, of, of host, competition between hospitals for patients is it doesn't really happen. And, and the, the, the amount of money spent on lawyers around monopolies and mergers is nonsense. However, the needs, the, the, the benefits from uh, engage, patients being more engaged in understanding their treatment, from being able to make decisions about their treatment, and again, this is not something that everyone can do, but to the degree that people can, I think it's beneficial both for the patient and for the system. Uh, just because they tend to make better decisions for themselves. They also often make better decisions for the system in terms of how, how the, the level of treatment that they require. I think we've got to think about patient voice as part of a, a bigger system of accountability, uh, how we bring uh, doctors, nurses, staff and politicians to account all the time and make them transparent. And I think one of the big problems with rushing to a market is we're reducing everything to the level of consumer. And one of the things that maybe many people don't realize is how the mechanisms that, that were there, uh, titrated there to improve accountability at all levels, whether it be at the area level, when it came to your chiropathy services, like community health councils, or individual patients who were um, upset uh, about a particular doctor or an incident, all of these things have been ripped out, but it's part of a much richer system. So when we go back to restoring this NHS and the duties and powers, it has to also be about enhancing and restoring systems of accountability, which were never brilliant. They never worked perfectly. I'm not got a rosy-eyed view, and they always needed to be improved. But actually what we've got now is nothing except patients as consumers who can either, and voice means entry or exit from the marketplace. Well, that's not much good if you've got a need for healthcare. You can't exit. So um, I think we've really got to take this back to democratic notions and concepts of accountability and transparency and calling and bringing to account, which happens both as individual patients, uh, in area-based populations, and as citizens as well. And, and I, I just wanted to... Uh, I'm not supposed to do this, but um, I wanted to just elaborate what Ray said about the professional voice, which is I've sat in enough boring meetings to support our professional organisations that you can imagine. Um, and one of the recurring things that is said is that if you explicitly oppose the government, you will be excluded from the table. Is that what they call it? The, uh, you will be excluded for a generation. I have heard that at the BMA, I've heard it at the Royal Colleges, I've heard it at the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. It is a dreadful way of exerting political control. And actually, one of Claire Girard's great achievements is to prove that wrong. Exactly. Because she, she came out and she said, this is an appalling piece of legislation, and she said it repeatedly. And actually, the, the government and the Department of Health want to talk to her more. And it may be a lesson that Dr. Foster will learn in due time that I think the organisations that persistently tell the government what they want to hear, in the end, you know, even government need 
a bit of truth rather than anything else. Now, shall we top? Top, yes. At the, right at the back at the top. We got a mic? Yes. Hi, I'm a fourth year medical student from Birmingham. Um, this is not my opinion, but I just wanted to ask what your responses would be to those who say that NHS is just being upheld as a sacred cow. Um, because the values and the culture we live in is very different to that of the 1948. Yeah. Gosh, well, may I? Yeah, you do. It seems to me the NHS has many faults, and all of us who work in it are incredibly aware of those faults. We probably spend much of, I spent much of my clinical professional life whinging about what was going on in the NHS and how it simply wasn't good enough for my patients, etc., etc. But um, I don't think... The notion that, you know, as Nigel Lawson said, the nearest thing we have to a national religion is the NHS is actually true. I think people do look critically at the NHS, not just when things go horribly wrong. Uh, people, you know, fight for reorganisation of services and so on. There's been a process of constant critical reflection within the NHS on its own practices. I mean, to give an example, which I have no personal credit for, look at diabetes services. When I started as a junior doctor, diabetes outpatient clinics consisted of about 300 people turning up, not even getting their feet looked at, their sugars measured, or their eyes looked at. By the time I left, diabetes outpatient clinics were just for a small number of patients had extraordinary complex problems, but they've been fantastic. Uh, work together with general practitioners in the community between consultants and so on. And that's the kind of endless critical self-critical -re reflection and improvement that's been going on in all sorts of areas. So um, I don't think that those who uphold the NHS are in any way critical. They're continual, candid, critical friends of this institution. But thank you for the question. And, uh, and is, the, is the... I'd like to reflect... Have you still got the mic? I want to reflect the question in good Stephen Gross style. Um, it, is, um, is society less committed to social justice today than it was in 1948? No. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I honestly don't believe your, your generation is any less committed to justice than mine was. Um, yes, please, next. Uh, stripey, stripey Matalo Middle... <laughs> but other side other. I, I just wonder whether we've um, got a little tempted towards this idea of economics I think we're all persuaded by the, uh, the argument of an economic basis and I know that some of the um, journalists in economics such as Daniel Pink have recently really questioned the idea that what motivates us is profit and uh, big work done in the States um, by the Federal Reserve Bank and work done here at the London School of Economics have really dispelled this idea that people are motivated financially in, in, in our current age and have said that actually what motivates us is autonomy, mastery and purpose. And to me that seemed to really sum up what the NHS was about. So it feels like we maybe need to kind of debunk that myth and that they're doing it in, in the world, world of economics, and yet we're being persuaded by a kind of false economic theory. You have unanimous endorsement from the platform. How do we get that across to people that will listen? Well, that's a, that's a much more difficult question. Off you go. 
Well, it comes back to information and education. It means not accepting the shibboleths and the myths like aging population or austerity or financial crisis or migrants. I mean, it actually means that we've got to de deconstruct every single one of those and challenge and, and critically and not allow the government to appeal to our baser instincts because that's actually what they're doing on the radio, on Radio 4 every day of the week. They're appealing to our baser divide of instincts and to actually bring it back to what we are as, you know, social justice and what we, what we believe in. There's this myth that, as we're professionals need incentivizing by things other than excellence within their profession and, you know, things working right in a way that they, you know, wanted to do. But the trouble is, financiers are motivated by profit and they are actually holding all the cards at the moment. They are the puppet masters within the political body. So even though you and I may not regard profit as our main aim, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of, which is actually driving the way public services are being reorganised, restructured and, and privatised. People look at what happen, happened to the banking system to realise that clearly that is fundamentally flawed. Oh, yeah. Too big to fail. I think what's extraordinary about this as well is, you know, particularly if you look at the consequences of, of, of management by targets, is that... It's actually a lot of the interesting work going on in this, and the thing coming is this. It is actually coming out of the private sector here, which is this notion, which is absolutely the right notion, which is management by values. People need to be held to account, not on. I'm a big fan of numbers. Okay, <laughs> numbers are really important to understand what's going on. But if you are held to account against a number being in a certain point, things start to go very wrong. You need to be held to account on values with numbers informing your understanding of what's going on. And, and management by values, which is absolutely where the NHS should be, is a million miles from where it is. People are managed on targets and on very crude numbers. Do you think Bain Capital is managed by, by, by values? I don't know about maybe, but, but actually they, they will manage against numbers with more sophistication than the NHS will. You move from values to numbers very quickly. Yeah. No, what, no I, I, mean, I don't know about Bain Capital, I don't know. I mean, but, but, the, but, but the numbers but, yeah. differ according to which system you're in. That's really important. Right. When you're in a market paradigm, you use a completely different set of numbers, so you move to provider-based performance and targets and mortality and all the Dr. Foster stuff. When you're in a universal system, you're still using numbers, but you're actually measuring things in completely different ways, looking at access and equity and mortality for whole across populations and within populations. The technical apparatus is very different from a market, from a public in, and a public integrated system. Okay, I'm going to take a question down here and I'm going to take a question over there. Can I have a mic here? Across this second row. Like past the puzzle, I should stop the music and you have to stop. Um, Hi, um, I'm a GP. When the Health and Social Care Act was passed, as part of my consultation was to get people to um, write to their MP and, you know, protest. Mm -hmm. um, I, signed, I signed all the 38-degree emails, sent them money, etc. Um, what I was struck by was how most of them didn't know. Yeah. Uh, my friends didn't know what I was on about, didn't seem to care. And, you know, your, Alison, your sort of description of uh, the consequences of that today, you know, it's, it just makes me feel even more dismayed. You know, part of my consultation, as well as, as, well as telling people to stop smoking, I tell them to stop reading the Daily Mail. <laughs> uh, that's, that, that's, I'm being serious, that's, that's part of what I do. Um, but I'm, 
Although what, I have to what? say, David Rose in the Daily Mail did fantastic features on the destruction of the, uh, of the dismantling of the NHS. Uh, I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> 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 but what's, um, <clears throat> what, what, uh, the question I'm always left with is, you know, why are journalists so lazy? You know, Roger, you might be able to answer that. We, you know, we, we, kicked, we kicked off yesterday morning with uh, the young chap, Reese, who was, I was astonished by his, um, his, his maturity, his uh, ability to, you know, campaign against, you know, grotesque evils that have brought, you know, that have brought on patients, um, purely for profit, it seemed. And yet, you know, uh, the, the media, the journalists who, who work for these institutions, whether it be the, B, the BBC or, you know, um, the, the printed press, they, they, they're just, um, he puts them to shame. Um, and how is it because, well, I, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe you could... Uh, well, yeah. well, well, I was going to say, I think, <laughs> one of the, I think you're absolutely right. There's a problem in, in, in journalism and the media generally. Um, the BBC is interesting, actually, because that's, that's probably not in this position. But if you take print media... It is all going bust, basically. And the number of newspaper pages that are now filled with essentially rewritten press releases is quite alarming. I and mean, the Daily Express is basically just rewritten press releases plus four stories about Princess Diana and the weather that they have on a computer that they just pull out in <coughs> rotate. There is almost no journalism going on there at all. And this is a real crisis because what we haven't quite worked out is how the future media world is going to work as it becomes disjointed and more web-based. And, and, and very interesting, I was in Italy recently um, giving a talk. They've just had this party, um, Grillo, this, this clown who turns out to have run somebody down in his past. He's um, a pretty odd character. Uh, and they're, a they're kind of a political party defined by what they hate, basically. They're a pretty uh, um, uh, unpleasant bunch. Um, but what they want, uh, explicitly part of their tactic was to only use social media and to not engage in any way with serious media. Because we saw what happened with sort of people, you know, we saw with the Republican nominees and Sarah Palin. Serious media has a function because it can, it can hold people to account and expose them as fools. And if you don't have that serious media, the democratic process is, can be seriously undermined. And I think there is a real issue about that for all Western countries at the moment. I'm running out of time. I'm going to take one more question and then. Uh, yes, Charlotte. Can you hear this okay? Yes. Uh, just a tiny comment, because um, I agree so much with what Alison said. Um, I 100% agree with, in the socialised health system, but I was just a bit disappointed and wanted to speak up on behalf of medical sociologists and psychologists again, because you did denigrate um, the research that's, t you know, you said that empathy, the, the necessity for empathy or something like that in medicine was psychobabble. And that's, you just denigrated a whole swathe Only of when dislocated from the system analysis. Because only only when dislocated. No, because what yeah. I wanted to say was actually this, the research in psychology could defend your, your ideas about micromanaging and putting huge pressures on doctors. So I just wanted to make that Thank point. You. I didn't want you to have too nice a time. <laughs> <laughs> so last comment before from... You wanted to say something, right? Just a quick one, which really fits with the journalism and as a rounding off comment as well. I think Roger's quite right. Journalism is what it's called. It's basically re reprinting, you know, press releases. There's a celebrity culture which makes things that are trivial uh, important. There is fear. There's the question of who owns most journalism and how not to offend the advertisers. And also, some some journals, uh, some main broadsheet of broadsheets, are actually have ideological commitment to the kind of uh, destruction of the NHS. 
So that brings me back perhaps some of the opening points, which is in this room we have a, an extraordinary number of intellectual leaders who will, who will be aware of what is going on and who have the capacity, they've been trained to communicate, to explain in very straightforward terms what may seem to be a technical issue, but actually it's something upon which our life and death hangs. What a moment to stop. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much.